This morning, uh, we're actually not going to be in Luke 6. The next two episodes in Luke, uh, as we're working through, have to do with Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And, um, and, and so the topic at hand that's making the Pharisees so upset and so frustrating to the point they want to kill Jesus is because in their perception, Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. So I debated uh, whether we jump right into that, but what I decided to do is actually do a biblical overview of Sabbath. Now, I know you got some of this last week, and I just uh, hope to add into it. We're going to kind of even zoom out more and figure out what this rest theme is. Uh, that's what Sabbath means. Uh, it means to rest. Now, I wonder if anyone here values rest. I know all of us, after a long day's work where we're physically tired, rest is one of those moments of yes. Uh, how about uh, mental rest? Have you ever been able to rest physically? You have nothing to do, but mentally you are seeming to struggle to rest. That was me last weekend when they found a spot on my dad's pancreas and they're trying to figure out whether it's cancer or not. Uh, I didn't have to preach. Scott was taking that. I had nothing but time in a hospital room without mental rest, striving to be able to rest, though, in Christ. And I love how Scott ended his sermon quoting Augustine, Thou has made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We see a world that's running desperately, trying to find rest, trying to find some place to rest. We have people working so hard for the moment of retirement because they think that's where they're going to find this fulfilling rest. And, and yet, although God made them for rest, they will not find it in retirement, not the type of rest where your heart can rest. So we're going to ask the question first, uh, what is the Sabbath? We're going to look at what the Sabbath is, and we're going to look at four different aspects of it, and then we're going to look at how to apply it to our lives. So if you look at your notes there, you can kind of see that uh, set up. And I'm just uh, telling you, we're going to be going from text to text. Uh, if you can follow along, I think it will be helpful for you to see this. And uh, this might be the type of sermon where you think, now's time to get my rest. He's going from text to text. I can just kind of doze off in this. But I'm telling you, the payoff, if you'll stay with me, and follow this glorious theme throughout the Bible uh, will be there. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8, that's where we're going to begin. We're asking the question, what is the Sabbath? 
And the first thing you see in your notes there, the Sabbath is a Mosaic covenant command. The first time the Sabbath comes onto the scene in its uh, proper form where you actually see the term Sabbath and it comes in a command form is through Moses' ministry to Israel. You know, there's different covenants throughout the Bible. Uh, you've heard of the Noahic covenant where God promises Noah he'll never flood the earth again. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. Well, here in the Mosaic covenant, God gives the command in the middle of the Ten Commandments, uh, uh, the command to keep the Sabbath. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, at first glance, we might think, okay, the purpose of Sabbath is if God needs to rest, the man needs to rest. So it makes sense. Work six days, take a break. But that would be, if that's all it meant, a pretty man-centered way of viewing this commandment in light of the first three commandments that come before this. After God gives the command, he points to himself. I just want to show this to you real quickly. God says, I brought you out of Egypt. That's who I am. I'm your savior. I'm the one that saved you out of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. It's all about him. And then he says, do not make idols, and paraphrase, because I'm a jealous God, I punish sin, and I show steadfast love to those who love me. He's giving a command, and then he's pointing to who I am. And then he says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, because I won't hold you guiltless, if you do that. And then he comes to the Sabbath and he says, keep the Sabbath, may be holy, uh, a holy day for you, a blessing for you, for I created the earth in six days, then I rested. And so we see the Sabbath comes onto the scene as a command. And yet... As the Bible, as Scott pointed out last week, the Bible comes to us in a progressive revelation. We begin to get more clarity as the Bible moves on, especially when there's certain themes the Bible touches on. So I want you to turn with me uh, to Exodus 31, and we're going to get a bigger picture of what the Sabbath means within the Mosaic Covenant here. The first thing we see is that it's a command, but not only is it a command, we're going to see that this is the covenant sign 
for the Mosaic Covenant. And we're also going to see its purpose. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, this is a strong statement. Above everything you do, keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So not only is it a command, but this is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant to Israel. It's commanded in chapter 20. It's a sign in verse 31. And now here's its purpose at the end of verse 13. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Here's what the sign means. Israel, I save you. I clean you up. I am your salvation. I'm the one that took you out of Egypt. I'm your Savior. I'm the one that's going to cleanse you from your idolatry. That's what it means. So it's a sign of the covenant, and what it means is I'm going to clean you up. Now, it's going to be interesting. Next week, when we look at Luke, the Pharisees are thinking you keep the Sabbath to clean yourself up. It's all about their religious works to be right with God. And actually, they're just seeing the opposite of what it's meant for. And then here's what he says. The purpose is that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. It's for their benefit. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Now, what's the big deal? Put to death for working on the Sabbath? What does the Sabbath mean? I will sanctify you. You try to sanctify yourself, it'll end in death. It'll end not good for those who seek to build up their own righteousness. And then he says it again in verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord uh, made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So it's a command to Israel. It's a sign of the, God's covenant with Israel. And what it means is, I will sanctify you. You tracking? Now, it's interesting. Right after he gives this in, in verse chapter 31, we don't have time to read chapter 32, but what does Israel do? Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. 
they say, he's not coming back. Make everybody gather the gold. Let's make a golden calf. And then they pronounce, this calf is what saved us out of Israel. This is our savior. Immediately, they show themselves to be rebellious and they begin to scheme rather than trust God. And uh, I also want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 12. I think what you'll see is you'll just, it'll just start to become more clear to you. The meaning of I will sanctify you will become more clear as you see this. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Now, this is after 40 years of not trusting God in the wilderness. God's took them out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, promised that he was going to take them into the promised land. They didn't trust God. And now they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses is, in a sense, giving the second law. He's giving the law of God, reminding them of the law, except now there's a little bit of commentary with it. So here's what he says in verse 12. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day. To keep it holy as the Lord commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your sons or daughters, or your male servants, or your female servants, or your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, or, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servants and female servant may rest as well as you. So that sounds really familiar. But then this is new. You shall remember, are, are, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, meaning you were helpless to save yourself. You were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord, your God brought you up from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. You see that? You were helpless. I came in and saved you. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. Remember that you're not going to save yourself. I'm going to work for your salvation. The purpose of the sign is to remember that it's God who sanctifies. One more. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 5. Ezekiel chapter 20, starting in verse 5. Trust me, it's worth it to turn and, and see this with me. This is the shocking grace of God to save rebellious people, which is good news because that's what you and I are. Ezekiel chapter 20, looking at uh, verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, now look, look who's acting in this text. When I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them up out of the land of Egypt into the land that I had searched out for them. 
and a land are a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake their idols in Egypt. Then I said, I would... I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land. So I led them out of the land of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign. There it is again. It's a sign between me and them that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now listen. Here's where it gets shocking. But... The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. In my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them, or that I would not bring them into the land that I have given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all the lands, because they rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Verse 17 is the key. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them to, in the wilderness. Why did God spare them? Was it because they kept his Sabbaths? Was it because they were good enough? Was it because they were able to sanctify themselves and keep all their rules? But rather, verse 15 says that he swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I'd given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious lands, because they rejected my rules. Nevertheless, God's mercy overflowed for them. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he tries to explain why God saved him. Here's what he says. Uh, you don't need to turn here. First Timothy 1.12, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Well, why was Paul faithful? Listen. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Why did you receive mercy, Paul? Because he judged me faithful. 
I acted ignorantly in unbelief and I was a blasphemer. But, and he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't believing Christ. He was persecuting Christ, and yet the grace of God overflowed in Paul's heart to give him the faith and love to trust Christ. Who sanctifies Paul? God does. Christ does. And so we see that it's a mosaic command, it's a sign, and its purpose is, I'm going to be the one to sanctify you. And uh, you might say, Sam, why didn't you start in Genesis? Well, there is a creation pattern of rest that starts in Genesis 2. But the Sabbath command doesn't come until the Mosaic Covenant, and then it uses Genesis to illustrate the command. But here's what he says in Genesis 2, uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, uh, and going through verse 3, he says, Thus the heavens and earth were finished, all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he has done. So God blessed the seventh day He made, and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work he had done in creation. So God creates the world Man is in perfect union with God. Everything is right in the world, and God is at rest. Well, how long does that last? Not very long. And God needs to get back to work in chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve sin, they realize they're naked. They begin to work their own salvation. They feel shame. They sow fig leaves. They put it on. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, what do you see? You see God working to cover their shame as he makes animal skin clothes for them, clothes for them so that a sacrifice had to be made, the first blood sacrifice. God's going to be the one to clean up man. It's going to be through the seed of the woman. So there's a creation pattern that is pointing towards Christ. There's also an Abrahamic covenant promise. Abraham was promised land in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 17, chapter 22. He's promised land, children, and blessing. That God is going to give it to them. Even when Abraham and his descendants fail, the promise is still going to happen. And that land, we know because of Psalm 95, which Scott went through last week, and because of Hebrews 3 and 4, that land represents entering rest, the Sabbath rest in God. So so there's a creation pattern, there's an Abrahamic covenant promise that there's going to be a fulfillment of this. And then we get to the fulfillment in Christ Christ is our Sabbath rest. And I want to show you this. I could show you this in so many different ways, but I want to show it to you in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 16. John 5, 
John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. So what does the Sabbath mean? Just a refresher that the Lord is going to sanctify his people. The Lord is going to save his people. You're not going to be able to work it. You're not going to be able to do it. So when the Lord comes down in the person of Christ, the God-man, is when he's on this earth, what do we expect from him? What do we expect Jesus to do? But we expect him to be at work. In John 5.16, here's what we read. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath. His disciples were eating on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, and he says this odd thing. My father is working until now, and I am working. I thought he rested back there. Well, he's working. He's working to make things right again between God and man. My father's working, and you're shocked that I'm working? Being the son of God, I'm down here on this earth working? And then verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives lives to whom he will, or gives life to whom he will. You want to know what Jesus is working He's working salvation in people's lives. And who does he give it to? Whoever he wills. He's doing the work of God. Do, is, is our salvation a 50-50 work between God and man? Or does God sanctify us? Is God the one who saves us? Jesus is doing God's work. He's down here and he's giving life to whomever he will. And then look at John 5.36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me is also borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do, do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And then verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's what he's saying. He's looking at the Pharisees and he says, you're looking at that Sabbath command and you even made it more strict than God made it. You created the Mishnah and the Talmud and all these extra laws on top of it. We'll look at some of those next week. They're ridiculous. But he's like, 
you think that in those laws you have eternal life and that Sabbath day is pointing to me. I'm the one you need to have life and salvation. And then in John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is here working. John 6.27, Do not work for food that perishes. This is interesting. Don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. So he's saying work, right? He's telling people work. Don't work for food that perishes, Rather, work for food that endures to eternal life. Now, get this, which the Son of Man will give you. He'll give it to you. (laughs) Work for life. The Son of Man's going to give it to you. And then they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What's our work? Verse 29 Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Strive, work. What for? To rest in Christ alone and not in your own goodness and your own righteousness. And then in the high priestly prayer, His prayer right before he's crucified, John 17, starting in verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. Who gets eternal life? Whoever Christ wills to give it to, who does Christ give it to? To whoever the Father gave him. And then in verse 3 it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus came to work. And how does Jesus' life end? John 19, starting in verse 30. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's down to the last minutes of his life. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what does he say? It is finished. What did Jesus come down to earth to do? To work. And hanging on that cross, he says, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And I was going to stop there, but I looked ahead, and I don't know how much to make about this, but look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the others who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, proof that it is finished. 
Don't leave his body on the cross over the Sabbath day. He's resting. He just said it's finished. I love it. They take his body off the cross. They don't want to hang in on the Sabbath day. I don't know how much to make about of that, but I thought it was interesting. Seeing the theme of Christ's work. So, what practical influence does this have on your life? I don't know what view you had of the Sabbath day. I don't know if you viewed it as Sunday, that you're just not supposed to work on Sunday. Um, a lot of the Puritans did that. They transferred Saturday, the Sabbath, to the Lord's Day. I don't think uh, evidence in church history uh, shows much evidence that the early Christians viewed the Lord's Day as replacing the Sabbath because they got up early to worship a lot of times, and then they went to work on that day. Now, they, we are supposed to worship on the Lord's Day, I think. I think we can find two or three spots in the New Testament where we see the church doing that, but I do not think that replaces the Sabbath. When are you supposed to rest? Every day. Today is the day of salvation. That's what Scott preached last week. When are you supposed to rest in Christ? Today. Right now. So, let's get really practical. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying to work to please God in a way that earns your salvation for you. Don't do that. This is man's tendency to take Christ, as we're going to see in a moment, and turn him into some religious thing rather than trusting in the person who he is. Don't make fig leaves for yourselves when God has given you skins. The Lamb of God has died for you to cover your shame and your nakedness. He's the one that sanctifies you, that makes you clean, that wipes your sin away. What did the, what did Jesus say of the Pharisees? You don't need to turn here. Luke 11.45. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you're insulting us. Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees. He's, the lawyer says, don't you know you're insulting us? I love this. Here's what Jesus says. He said to them, woe to you lawyers also. <laughs> you thought I was offending the Pharisees? Let me start with you now. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves will not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Here's the religion of the Pharisees. Keep these laws, which we can't even keep. Let me put this burden on top of you. Stop trying to save yourself. Rather, number two, run to Jesus. He can sanctify you and give you rest. This is why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, look how different they are than the teachers. He is from the teachers of the law. He says, um, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. So someone might say, okay, the only one who's going to believe is the one whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. That's true. 
It's an absolute fact. If you don't like it, you got to rip out all these verses I'm giving you. This is what Jesus is saying. It's what the Father's saying. But that comes with a compliment that says, come. You don't sit there and say, well, if he doesn't open my eyes, I'm not going to be saved. No. Right after that, what does he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And it's interesting, the very next verse is, at that time, Jesus went throughout the grain fields on the Sabbath, and he gets in trouble. That's our text next week. But Jesus, run to him. He's the only one that can give you rest. Three, stop looking for Jesus plus anything. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you're going to be tempted to do this. I know I'm supposed to rest in Christ alone, but shouldn't I do this, this, this? Shouldn't I add to it? This has always been a problem for Christianity from its very inception. Turn with me to Colossians 1. We're going to do this really fast, but I love this. So false teachers have come into Colossae, and you got this brand new church, and you have these false teachers saying, you need to trust in Jesus plus, you got to keep all these uh, uh signs and laws that were given to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant that uh, they need to keep uh, these ceremonial laws and these festivals. And so here's how you should think of Colossians. Colossians is Paul trying to help people see how stupid they're being in light of here's what you have in Christ and you want to go where? (laughs) That's what Colossians is. It's like, you want to do what? And this is who he is? So let me just show it to you. Colossians 1.13. Here's what he's done for you as a Christian. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right? That's pretty cool. You're delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this son? And then he goes crazy here. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent above all of it. For by him, all things were created. He's God. He's not created himself. He's the creator. In heaven and for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know they don't even know what holds a cell together. Science knows doesn't make sense for them. And then verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now listen to me, that in everything he might be preeminent. Your life is doesn't function like this. God number one, family number two, church number three, friends number four. No, 
Christ wants preeminence in everything. In your family, in your job, in your friendships, Christ wants to be number one. It's all about him. He created everything. It's by him. It's for him. That's what your life is about. Now, if you trust in Christ, you have him. Now, what are you going to add to him? That's the point. That, 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 that's what he's saying. Look at, look at verse 28 of Colossians 1. We proclaim him we proclaim. You want to know what we talk about? Him. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's saying, everything I'm about is this, making people mature in Christ. That's our message. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love. Now get this, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom? You want knowledge? You want to go after something? Guess what? It's all in him. Where are you going to go beyond him? If all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is in him, what are you going to add to him? What are you going to go down? What legalistic thing are you going to add to him to make your religion better? He's the fullness. That's the point, that, that, that's the point he's making. And then he says, uh, in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. This is what Scott read. Be rooted in him, not in anything else. And then look at verse 16. In light of this wonderful salvation... He says this, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. These are Mosaic covenant uh, laws, ceremonial laws, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath, these festivals on the beginning of the month. You can read about them in Numbers 28 if you want. These... Or he says, new moon or Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you. These false teachers are coming in. Why aren't you keeping the Sabbath? Why aren't you keeping? What are you talking about? These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Remember we talked about progressive revelation? These signs are pointing to the thing, and the thing is shown up, and the people trusted in Christ. He's the substance of the sign, and he's saying, are you stupid? You're going to go back to the signs when he's here? And then he says, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you've died to the elemental 
spirits of the world. Why is if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to the precepts and teachings? These indeed have the appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can do all these things. You can try to add religion. It won't help you fight sin. You need Christ. I skipped over it. I was going too fast. Look at Colossians 2.9. This settles the day. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If a Jehovah's Witness ever comes to your door, tries to tell you that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's not God, he's a created being, take him to, take him to Colossians 2.9. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And how does he argue this in Colossians? <laughs> you have the fullness of deity in Christ, and his spirit lives inside of you, and you're going to add what to him? It's ludicrous. So don't add anything to Christ. It's like Galatians when we went through that, right? Okay. Finally, fight the fight of faith to rest in Christ. Does this mean we just chill? No, it means we fight. How does Paul describe resting in Christ, trusting him by faith? How does he describe faith? I fought the fight of faith. I finished the race. Races are hard. Fights are difficult. As long as we have remaining sin inside us and an unbelieving flesh at war with the Spirit, which has brought faith to us, guess what? You're in a battle. So strive in faith to rest in Christ. And one day, Christ is going to come back And the new heavens and new earth are going to be here. We're going to be changed. We're not going to have any more sin inside us. And faith won't be a fight anymore. We'll see the consummation of our rest in the new heavens and the new earth. I just want to close with two passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 58. Have you guys ever watched an eagle fly? It doesn't look like they're working very hard flying over mountains. They're just kind of, looks like they're resting up there. I love Isaiah's imagery, Isaiah 58, verse 13. He says this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from the doing your pleasure on my holy day, he's basically saying, if you go try to find your own happiness, do things your own way, and you call the Sabbath, the delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, look at verse 14, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you quit working and doing it your own way and you rest in Christ, he'll make you soar 
over the heights of the earth. And you're going to recognize this one, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Some of you might have it on your walls at home. All of Isaiah 40, the message before this is this. All flesh is grass, it's weak, and it can do nothing for itself. It it blooms, it's there for a moment, and then it's gone. But the word of the Lord stands forever, and Christ is prophesied of being this creator gone. And 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 here's how he ends it. He says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, the most strong people on the face of the earth, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Rest in Him. Wait for Him. Father, thank You. Thank You for all these signs You give us in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Christ find their beauty in him. Lord, help us not get off track doing things that actually bring glory to ourselves and make us look down on other people. Father, I pray that you would help us fight the fight of faith. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.